thinking about Father's Day, the verse that you may have seen in yesterday's email has been on my heart from Psalm 103, 13. It says, As a father has compassion on his children, so the Lord has compassion on those who fear him. Came up last Sunday as I talked to a brother in need in the church, and he said he felt bad for asking. And I said, let me share a verse with you. And I shared this verse. As a father has compassion on his children, so the Lord has compassion on those who fear him. And I asked him, I said, if your son came to you with a need, uh, would you be uh, beating him down? He said, oh, no, 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 no. I'd want to hear what it was. And I said, that's how God and that's how this church feels about this situation. I think about the, the compassion of the Father, and I think about the amazing thing that the Father sent us the ultimate gift, the gift of His Son, even knowing that He must face rejection time and time again that would lead Him to a cross where He would die for your salvation and mine. What a Father we have. Today we're going to continue to see that rejection of His Son in Matthew chapter 13, starting at verse 53. We're going to see that Jesus is wrapping up the parables that we've been talking about. Verse 53, when Jesus had finished these parables. And we've got to remember, the first one in particular told us that there was going to be a mixed response in men's hearts to the gospel. Not all men are going to receive it. Some are going to reject it with a hard heart. That's going to set the tone for what's about to happen. He finished the parables. It says he went away from there, went away from Capernaum. Maybe he was in Peter's house teaching his disciples. He got up and left. And he's going to return home to teach. Verse 54 says, coming to his hometown, he taught them in their synagogue. Now, it's been well said that sometimes where you grew up is the hardest place to be a witness because everybody knows you, right? Now, obviously, Jesus didn't have any sin issues, but we're going to see there were other obstacles. Coming to his hometown, he taught them in their synagogue. Where did he grow up? Not where was he born, but where did he grow up? Nazareth. Nazareth. Taught them in their synagogue. Now, think about this. He grew up there. He goes there. He's teaching in the synagogue. He's likely teaching some who taught him, right, when he grew up there, sitting there in the crowd with his his family. That's the scene. How would his hometown people react? It says so that they were astonished. They were astonished. And it says they asked, where did this man get this wisdom and these mighty works? Now, some of what they're probably saying is, hey, he didn't go to school for this like most rabbis. Okay, today they, they might say, hey, he doesn't have a bachelor of pastoral ministry or an MDiv. Where'd he get all this? They fail to recognize the, the, the source. But they go on. They say, is not this the, the carpenter's son? Mark says, is not this the carpenter? That was his livelihood. They're looking and saying, hey, this guy built our plows. He, he built our yokes. Is not his mother called Mary? And are not his brothers James and Joseph and Simon and Judas? And are not all his sisters with us? You see what they're saying here? They're saying, we know his family. 
Not like they're kings or prophets or something. They're just like the rest of us. Maybe, maybe some are even thinking, wasn't there that thing about Mary getting pregnant with him before they were married? Could have been going around, that false rumor. So they say, where then did this man get all these things? And they took offense at him, verse 57. Maybe there's even a little bit of jealousy there. He grew up right next door to me. Who's he think he is? Saying he's the Messiah. Took offense at him. They were, they were scandalized by him. What's that mean? They, they couldn't deny the wisdom and the miracles. But they're really stumbling over how could all this come from a hometown boy? Right? I mean, like, I, I played tag with that guy when we were kids and I was faster than him. <laughs> or I, I saw him sweaty and tired after a day of work in his dad's carpenter shop. How could this be the Messiah? They stumbled over the, the stone of offense. And many have reminded us over the years, you know the phrase, familiarity breeds contempt, right? And we need to be aware of that even today. If we, if we grow up, up in the church around the things of Jesus, you know that? If, if we become overly familiar, we can start unknowingly to lose the childlike faith and wonder that we could have. When we encounter Jesus, it doesn't have to be that way, but it can happen. What would Jesus say in light of their questions and their objections and their offense? Jesus said to them, a prophet is not without honor except in his hometown and in his own household. I like what Charles Erdman wrote about this. He was rejected not because a prophet is well known in his own country, but because he is not really known. They thought they knew him, but they didn't really know him. And that reminds us of another danger. Sometimes it's possible to know just enough about Jesus to vaccinate us against the real thing, against the real Jesus. What was the result of the rejection here? Verse 58. As he did not do many mighty works there because of their unbelief. He didn't do them there because of their unbelief. Mark's even more pointed. Mark 6, 5 says he could not, he could do no mighty work there. He could do no mighty work there except that he laid his hands on a few sick people and healed them. Just a few. Now, what's going on here? Well, some have pointed out it could be, hey, they didn't believe, so not many people came asking. If they don't believe, they're not going to come looking for it, right? But also, in that he could do no mighty work there, I want to ask a couple questions. Was, was it that Jesus somehow lacked the power to do these things? Absolutely not. But it does remind us of a biblical balance when it comes to the way God has chosen to work in the world. I want to remind us of two realities that we need to keep in balance. One is God's will, God's sovereign will. And I want to say here, if something is not God's will, it does not matter how much we believe it or say it, it is not going to happen. God is sovereign. 
we need to keep that in mind. But on the other hand, I want to talk about this reality of faith and the reality that God often chooses to work through the faith of those he's engaged with. You just look through the Gospels. Though there are some miracles where the faith of the people is not mentioned, like the feeding of the 5,000, there are many others where the faith of the individual clearly is mentioned. We shouldn't underestimate either of those realities. And if you doubt the second one, even the epistle of James. Some of you know this verse, James 1.5. If any of you lacks wisdom, you should ask God who gives generously to all without finding fault. And it will be given to you. But when you ask, you must believe and not doubt. God's will and faith. Let's keep those in balance in our lives. Well, we come out of this short section. I said, what can we take from this as his messengers today, as we look at his rejection in his hometown? And I want to spend some time talking about three C's that I think will touch our lives today. The first one is compassion. I want us to think about that word compassion again. I already talked about the compassion of a father that would send his son, knowing the rejection and the cross that he would face. But I also think about the compassion of Jesus Christ for you and I as believers today when we face rejection in our world. Because he's been there. I like what Warren Wiersbe said here. He was called Jesus of Nazareth. His followers were called Nazarenes. But Nazareth did not receive him. And I want you to think about this for a minute. He, he was fully human just as much as he's fully God. Their response proves it. He didn't grow up with some halo on his head. Right? I'm so thankful for Jesus of Nazareth. Think about how this must have hurt. We downplay this because, oh, we've got, I mean, he's fully human. We see his emotions elsewhere. How it must have hurt to go home to people you grew up with, played with, worked with, and to be rejected. What did he say to us? John 15, 18, he says, If the world hates you, know that it hated me before it hated you. You see his compassion? That enables him to be what Hebrews calls a merciful high priest. You go through that rejection. You take it to him. He says, I understand. I have walked that road. And not only that, I am with you as you face the rejection you face for being faithful to me. I believe he has compassion when his followers are rejected today. Second word I want to talk about is comfort. There's strange comfort to be had in the fact that even Jesus was rejected often. As believers today who know we're here to share the good news of Jesus, we look around and we know there's a mission field out there. It's, it's more and more obvious every day. Maybe you heard of the recent Jeopardy episode within the past couple weeks. There was a question about the Lord's Prayer. And the question went like this, Our Father which art in heaven, blank be your name. Not one of the three people standing there 
knew the answer was Hollywood. But what gets me even more is it's possible to know the answer to that question and still not know Jesus. There's a mission field out there, and sometimes we, we feel the, the weight of that. But I brought up the word comfort here and the fact that Jesus was re rejected because I believe sometimes the enemy gets in here. And sometimes we as believers carry too heavy a load when it comes to our witness. What do I mean by that? If, if someone we share with doesn't come to Christ, we let a heavy load of guilt come upon us. And we, we carry it with us. We talked about this at the prayer meeting a couple weeks ago, how common that is. And I want to say we need to strike a balance here as believers. On the one hand, let's not be careless, never sharing the gospel, never planting seeds. But on the other hand, do not let the enemy's condemnation steal your joy when they don't come to Christ. Don't let them do that. I had a mentor one time ask me a question when I was kind of beating myself up about a situation like this. He said, hey, let me ask you a question. When someone gets saved or accepts your advice from the Word of God and follows it, do you take the glory? I said, no. He said, then why do you take the condemnation when they don't? I think Bob Newhart would say, stop it. <laughs> right? Don't take the glory. Don't take the condemnation. We are called like Ezekiel to be the watchmen on the wall who report the truth of the situation, the good news of the gospel. The reporting of God's message is our department. The response is not. The response is not. Even Jesus was rejected. I also think about this. As much as you love the idea of people you know, lost people coming to salvation, God loves it even more. And he's working actively in this world to that end. We saw that this week. Russ called me so excited. You guys know he's gone through a brain tumor, had it removed, radiation. And he told me, I got, I got to share something with you about how God's been working through this whole situation, even years ago. So four years ago, he, he received a call from an atheist who's writing books about quantum physics. Russ is a book editor, and, and Russ is edited for him along the way. Along the way, Russ has planted seeds of, about Jesus and his walk with him, but never did this guy show any interest or, or even any, any vulnerability to any of that. Russ said, guess what happened this week? That guy's wife was diagnosed with a brain tumor. And Russ said he called me. He called me because he knows I've walked that road. And Russ just said, can we pray together? As I have this opportunity now to show Christ to him and his wife. As much as we love the idea of the lost around us getting saved, God loves it even more. He, he's working. And remember, you're part of a team. Right? This was brought up at the prayer meeting the other night. You're not alone. You, you plant a seed or show someone Christ and they don't come to know him in that moment. Remember what Paul said in 1 Corinthians 3, 5. He's talking about leaders in that early church. What then is Apollos? What is Paul? Servants through whom you believed as the Lord assigned to each. I planted, Apollos watered, but God gave the growth. 
God gave the growth. Remember that. I read a disturbing story recently. This is true. It sounds like science fiction, but it's true. In Japan, they're actually having a class right now to train people again how to smile. Because all the years with masks, muscle memory has been lost. How sad is that? People have forgotten how to smile. But I think about something deeper than the outward smile. I, I think about this question. What kept a, a joyful smile in Jesus' heart when he was rejected? What was it? I like what G. Campbell Morgan said here. The perpetual sunshine of Jesus' life was the consciousness that he was doing God's will. Whether at Nazareth or on the public highways and byways, his one joy and delight was his Father's will. I read that and I say this. I say, do not look to the world's response for your inner smile of joy. Look up. Look up to your Father. Many will reject the message. They even rejected Jesus. Don't, don't give up. Just think about this. If only one soul in the 2,000 year history of the church came to Jesus and was saved from forever in the torments of hell, would it not have been worth it? And yet we know there have been and will be many more. What does it say in Revelation? People from every tribe, tongue, and nation will be there in eternity worshiping their Savior. Many will reject it, but don't give up. Galatians 6, 9, let us not grow weary of doing good, for in due season we will reap if we do not give up. I think about even that day, it's likely that his brothers were in that synagogue, right? That's where he grew up. What does John tell us about his brothers throughout his ministry? John seven fifty five. for even his own brothers did not believe in him. They were probably among those in that synagogue that day taking offense at their brother, right? There he goes again. But we also know Acts 1.14. When those 120 believers were in that upper room praying and waiting for the Holy Spirit, what do we read? All these with one accord were devoting themselves to prayer together with the women and Mary, the mother of Jesus, and his brothers. Eventually, at least some of his brothers came around. Think of James. He became the leader of the early church in Jerusalem, wrote the epistle we have in our New Testaments, or, or Jude. I believe that's the short form of Judas who's listed as his brother. Not Judas Iscariot, but Jude wrote that epistle you have in your Bible right before Revelation, I believe. Don't give up. Don't give up. Compassion, comfort, the last C I want to talk about this morning is courage. As I ponder the great courage of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ in moments just like this. And to unpack this one, I want to go back to Luke 4 for a visit to Nazareth. Scholars debate about whether it's the same visit or not. That's not important for our discussion. This happened regardless. But if you have your Bibles, I'd invite you to turn to Luke chapter 4 for just a moment. 
Luke 4, 16. It says, He came to Nazareth where he had been brought up, and as was his custom, he went to the synagogue on the Sabbath day, and he stood up to read. This happened more than once. It says, as was his custom. And the scroll of the prophet Isaiah was given to him. He unrolled the scroll and found the place where it was written in Isaiah, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me, because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives and recovering of sight to the blind, to set at liberty those who are oppressed, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. And he rolled up the scroll and gave it back to the attendant and sat down. And so far, if there were sleepers in the congregation, they might have been sleeping. They'd heard this before. But right here, it tells us they weren't. They'd heard this before. It says the eyes of all in the synagogue were fixed on him. And if they were fixed on him, they're about to get bigger. Verse 21 says, he began to say to them, today this scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. That's when they, whew, you ever see somebody do that in church? <laughs> What's he saying? He's saying, I am the servant of the Lord that Isaiah prophesied. I am the Messiah. Verse 22 says, all spoke well of him and marveled at the gracious words that were coming from his mouth. So far, not too bad, right? But then they start asking the questions. They said, is not this Joseph's son? They're wondering, but they spoke well of him and marveled at his gracious words. And I think about this. He could have stopped right there. He could have stopped right there. Had, things were peaceful. But his mission from his father and his courage would not allow him to. He went on to speak some uncomfortable, unpopular truths. Look at verse 23. He said to them, Doubtless you will quote to me this proverb, Physician, heal yourself. What we have heard you did at Capernaum, do here in your hometown as well. What's he saying? In their hearts, some were saying, hey, show us some of your fancy tricks here that then maybe we'll believe. But he knew their hearts for many of them. Even a miracle, even a miracle would not change those hard hearts. And, and he said to them, verse 24, truly I say to you, no prophet is acceptable in his hometown. And he's about to venture into even more controversial waters. Verse 25, he says, In truth I tell you, there were many widows in Israel in the days of Elijah, when the heavens were shut up three years and six months, and a great famine came over all the land. And Elijah was sent to none of them, but only to Zarephath in the land of Sidon, to a woman who was a widow. Imagine that, talking to a room full of Jewish folks. There are many widows in Israel, but Elijah didn't go to them. He went to a Gentile. And this was a particularly despised Gentile area. And just in case they missed it, he goes on to Elisha. Verse 27, he says, There were many lepers in Israel in the time of the prophet Elisha, and none of them was cleansed, but only Naaman the Syrian, another despised nation. What's he saying to the people in his hometown? He's saying, look, many of you are rejecting me and will reject me but the good news will carry on it will go to even gentiles and they will receive it 
how'd they respond to that little nugget? Verse 28, as when they heard these things, all in the synagogue were filled with wrath. And they rose up and drove him out of the town and brought him to the brow of the hill on which their town was built so that they could throw him down the cliff. Scholars tell us that's how many stonings began. That's likely what they were setting up for. You pushed the person off of a cliff and then you picked up rocks the size of the person's head and began to toss them down, aiming for the chest first. Likely wanted to stone our Lord that day. That wasn't even legal for them in that time. Execution was reserved for the Romans. It, this was out of control. Wrath. Verse 30 says, But passing through their midst, he went away. <laughs> he didn't hold back. He didn't hold back. He even spoke the parts of the message that were not popular. He boldly spoke truth even though he knew it would be resisted. And it leads me to a question as we think about courage as God's messengers in 2023. What parts of God's message are unpopular today? Are we guilty of chucking them, twisting them, changing them, removing them? Or in the power of the Holy Spirit, will we walk with the same courage our Lord did? We need to be those who take a stand for truth. Because it is under assault, as it always has been in this fallen world. We all do, but I want to say a special word to dads and grandpas today. A special word of encouragement to stand for the truth in your families and your sphere as the leaders of your group there. I think about dads taking a stand. I think about something that happened in our backyard last night. We have a family of quail that's settled in a, a dad and a mom and 12 little babies. They look like little chicken nuggets. <laughs> and it's been peaceful for the most part, but last night a, a third rogue quail was in the mix and, and going after those, those baby quail to, to harm them. Our kids didn't like that, nor do we. Jaden picked up a rock and threw it at the rogue, but I also saw the, the dad of those little babies. He, he chased that, that, that rogue into the next yard and went over there and stood against him as mom took the babies and protected them under a bush in our yard. We need dads who will stand against evil by standing for the truth in our families, in our churches. We need grandfathers to continue doing that. I'm thankful for that in our own family, as many of you are as well. As I look at our own parents who've moved out here and Carolyn's parents, I think about something a friend of mine who, who works in Childhood Evangelism Fellowship told us. When you think about standing against evil and standing for the truth, the reality that the vast majority of people who come to Christ come to Christ before the age of 15. Dads and grandfathers, we need to hold on to that. He also told me that a child's worldview, barring a supernatural intervention, is set by the age of 12. We need dads and grandfathers who will stand for the truth in our families. It's under assault. 
it's under assault in our world. I, I saw a Facebook post about one of the issues rocking the church world today, and I saw someone who I know grew up in the church stand against it. And the way they stood against this biblical truth, they said, I choose love over doctrine. As though those two things are, are enemies. And what I want to say to everybody in this room, dads and grandfathers included, is don't believe the lie that, that love and biblical truth are enemies. That is a lie. You know what Paul says in 1 Corinthians 13, 6? He says, love does not delight in evil, but rejoices with the truth. I think about this. I was reading this week several thoughts about how it's easier to talk about moral issues of the past than it is to talk about the ones of the, the current day. And several have spoken to this reality. G.K. Chesterton said it this way. He said, there's not really any courage at all in attacking antiquated things any more than in offering to fight one's grandmother. The really courageous man is he who defies tyrannies young as the morning and superstitions fresh as the first flowers. Greg Morris looked at that and he said this. He said, how many of us are tempted to be men who fight grandmothers instead of facing living giants? I also like the words that Elizabeth Charles wrote about Martin Luther as he took a stand for truth. She wrote this, she said, It is the truth which is assailed in any age which tests our fidelity. If I profess with the loudest voice and the clearest exposition every portion of the truth of God except precisely that little point which the world and the devil are at that moment attacking, I am not confessing Christ, however boldly I may be professing Christianity. Where the battle rages, the loyalty of the soldier is proved. And to be steady on all the battlefield besides is mere flight and disgrace to him if he flinches at that one point. I read those and I think about the courage of our Lord and Savior. And I say, man, may we be those who cry out to him and say, Lord, help me to walk in the same courage today by the power of of your Holy Spirit, compassion, comfort, and courage. And as we close preparing for communion, I want to come back around to compassion. The compassion of a father who sent his beloved son, knowing it would lead to rejection and a cross for your forgiveness and mine. And I think about Isaiah 53 again, verse 2. He grew up before him like a tender shoot and like a root out of dry ground. He had no beauty or majesty to attract us to him, nothing in his appearance that we should desire him. He was despised and rejected by mankind, a man of suffering and familiar with pain. Like one from whom people hide their faces, he was despised and we held him in low esteem. Surely he took up our pain and bore our suffering, yet we considered him punished by God, stricken by him, and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. 
The punishment that brought us peace was on him. And by his wounds, we are healed. We all like sheep have gone astray. Each of us has turned to our own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. I think of his sacrifice and I think about the majestic beauty of the word forgiveness. Forgiveness. I think about forgiveness on Father's Day and it reminds me of a story I read this week. There was a seminary professor grown now and he was recalling a time when he was a child when he lied to his dad and he was feeling bad about him so he wrote a letter to his now aged father and said dad I don't know if you know this happened or not or if you remember but I I lied to you in this circumstance and I just wanted to write you a letter and say that I apologize the next time he saw his mom and dad his his dad said of course I knew you lied and, and yes, of course, I forgive you. Wasn't long after that that his mom and dad both passed away. And he was at his mom and dad's house going through things. And he found a box of old cards that his dad had treasured. And he's going through there. And he found that, that one that he had written to him. And when he flipped it over to the back at the end of his writing, he saw in big, bold letters written in ink, forgiven, underlined. And the tears just flowed. And I think about the beauty and power of forgiveness. I think about the forgiveness that God offers us through his rejected and crucified son. Forgiveness is not written in ink. It's written in his own blood. Have you come to him in faith? Have you received him as your Savior and Lord? If so, maybe you appreciate these lyrics that I'll close with. I'm forgiven because you were forsaken. I'm accepted. You were condemned. I'm alive and well. Your spirit is within me because you died and rose again. Father, thank you so much. Thank you so much for Jesus Christ. I thank you for this brief passage in Matthew that shows us he experienced rejection well before we did. And as we watch him navigate that, following your will, I thank you that we realize his compassion as a merciful high priest. I pray anyone that needs to experience that in a powerful way today may find that in Jesus. They may bring that weight to you, the weight of rejection. Find that compassion. Think of the, the strange comfort that comes when we realize that even Jesus was rejected by men. And if anyone's been carrying that condemnation we talked about because this person or that person they've shared with hasn't come to you. May you free them from that condemnation this morning. Help them do their part. Help us do our part to plant those seeds, but, but to leave the weight of that, that salvation, that regeneration, squarely on your shoulders, your almighty shoulders. And may we be men and women of courage, not in our own strength, 
but in the power of the risen Christ who lives within and the power of the Holy Spirit who lives within to faithfully proclaim your message in its entirety. May we be people who find our joy not in the response of the people we share with, but in doing the will of our Father. think of doing the will of the Father, we think of the cross. As we prepare for communion, Lord, I pray that this moment we share here will not be another routine that we check off, but, but a powerful reminder of our Savior who's gone before and goes with and in us. In Jesus' name, amen.